California. His message that he's going to give in a couple of weeks, I've actually heard it before. So, so unique. So I'm excited for the next, next couple of weeks. But if you're wondering why people were cheering when, when they read that one passage about, for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Uh, that was kind of our theme for kickoff week. If you're a freshman and you didn't know that, uh, that was there, the cat's out of the bag, secret. Uh, we, those of us who call CSF home, had these little bracelets with just the first letters of each, uh, of, each of those verses on there. We're like, hey, we just want to, we want to go after and just chase people down the way, the way God does. And so if you want one of these bracelets, you think, oh man, that's a cool story. I'd love it. And it's also kind of a little, you know, memory device for learning that passage. We've got these bracelets are out right outside. There's a t-shirt table out back. If you want to see us have t-shirt, we've got those bracelets are free. You can grab one afterwards, but um, yeah, huh, here we go tonight here. Uh, my name tag someplace. I'm Brian, if we haven't met. My 19th school year here. It actually says stinky Brian on here. No pickles. Uh, because when I was walking through the door, Miriam, my 10-year-old daughter who's around here someplace, was like, don't put Brian, put stinky Brian. Because uh, I suppose that's what young daughters do to their dads, uh, is tell them that. So uh, she is a funny, funny girl. Even uh, right before we came down here, she was on, uh, we kind of have a house phone that the kids share. And she was on the phone. And, and uh, I was like, well, Miriam, I'm getting ready to leave. We need to, if we're going to go, we need to go. And she pushed mute on the phone so that her friend, who's several grades older than her, I'll just say that, who lives right down the road, she was, she said, Miriam's in fourth grade, but her friend who's uh, in middle school was calling her and she's like, she pushed mute and she said, she just want advice on what to do about a crush. <laughs> and I just, I, sh- I try not to laugh in her face. I don't know where she is, Mira. I don't know if you're hearing this or not, but uh, I go back and I'm like, my fourth grade daughter is giving advice to middle school girls on what to do about a crush. I'm like, something seems, uh, something seems funny about this, but I love getting to meet my, my kid's dad. It's just one of the greatest honors of my life, along with being uh, the husband of Shelby, but, but being a father is just such a unique, unique gift. And so this story in particular hits me in a really unique way, in a way that it didn't now that I am uh, a father. A.W. Tozier says this, I think we've got this on the screens, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Man, what, what in the world to do with that term, God? It gets tossed around a lot. A lot of people throughout thousands of years uh, have referenced, you know, God this, God that. And so many different things come into our mind when we think about when we use that term God. For a lot of us, we probably think about something just like a cosmic judge. You know, who's looking down on you, uh, mean, angry, just, just making a list of, of all your wrongs and, and can't wait to punish you someday for them. Maybe, maybe even soon he'll punish you for them. But we think, of, we think of a judge. Maybe for others of us, we think God and we just think, ah, just some old kind of guy with a big beard up there and uh, just old and out of it and doesn't really, can't really relate to our life where we're at now. For others, people, maybe they, they think of a genie and they think just somebody to grant cosmic wishes and, and and fulfill our desires. And there's, there's a lot of different ways in which even the Bible itself talks about God. You know, we, we see terms where God is referred to as a shepherd, and we are his sheep, and he looks after us. We see references of God being a king, God being a judge, it's true. God is the creator of everything. But there's one term that I think that the New Testament even, you know, these, these Jesus stories and learning from Jesus himself. And, and we see this one unique term, though, about God that actually I would argue 
actually in some ways doesn't, doesn't do anything to lessen those other terms, but actually all those other terms make sense when we understand this one particular term about God and this one way of understanding who God is, and that's the term Father. If you look at the New Testament, sometimes it's an interesting Bible study to do, and one that I've done myself, is just to open up a Bible and to just take, you know, start maybe in like the book of Romans. You kind of have those, you know, you've got the Jesus biographies there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you've got Acts. And then if you start with the rest of the, rest of the Bible there, and you, you just read through there, and just read the first four or five verses. So just like first four or five sentences of each book. And you will see one thing that stands out to you over and over and over again is that within most of those books, within the first four or five verses of those books, you don't have to read the whole thing, just the first four or five sentences, you will see that God is referred to as Father. That this is the dominant way that the Bible, particularly Jesus, invites us to look at God is God as our Father. Now, for some of you, that may be a really good thing. For some of you, you may go, man, I had a great Father. My father was wonderful, man. He was, he was someone I respected. He was someone who I did see as an authority figure in my life, but he was someone who deeply loved me and cared for me and, yes, at times disciplined me, but I knew ultimately it was for my good. Father, yes, to, to connect God with being a father, man, that's, that's, that's a really helpful image for me because I start to see, wow, if my earthly father, who's really imperfect, could be a good father, how much better is God, who's a perfect heavenly father? But for a lot of you in here, I'm guessing, too, that for some, you may have had a great father. And man, I'm so glad that for, for those of you who had a good father, that, that you had that experience growing up. But for a lot of us in here, uh, maybe that, that term we talk about God as father is not a helpful kind of connection with connecting God with father. Because maybe for you, God, you know, as father suggests, man, absenteeism. Dad wasn't there for, for whatever reason. Uh, you know, because he was too busy with work, he was too busy with friends, too busy with, you know, whatever it was. But God, you know, as father, it sounds like, man, so you're saying God wasn't there because that's how my earthly father was. Or maybe he was there and you're like, man, I, I don't want God to be like that because I know my father. And that is just not a, a positive reference for me. I, I know for myself personally, one of the things that, that I struggled with as a father and certainly as I connect this to God is that it's a, it's a super weird word for me personally because I, I, I did not grow up with a father. My dad, when I was young, my parents split when I was about five years old, and uh, my dad was an alcoholic for, for multiple decades, and finally my mom just said, I, I've had enough, I can't, leave. I can't live like this anymore, and I was the youngest in the family, and so uh, my parents divorced, and my dad basically just didn't show up. Yeah, I would see him in a small town, uh, like I grew up in Cynthiana, Kentucky, Harrison County. Never know if anybody in here has come from Harrison County. If you are, come say hi to me afterwards. I, we can tell Harrison County stories. But uh, in a small town like Cynthiana, you were bound to run into pretty much everybody once or twice a year. And I would run into him, and and uh, you know, it it was it was like, hey, here's this guy who really doesn't seem to love me and care about me. And so when when I hear that God is my father, when I first started becoming a Christian and started following Jesus, and I thought, wait, God's my father, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. That's, that doesn't sound like a good thing. And honestly, probably all of us in here in some way, shape, or form, we just, we have doubts, right? We have doubts. We can admit that. CSF, we want to be a place to just kind of, we try to keep it real, keep it honest. And, you know, we, we honestly have our doubts. Even those of us who say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. And we have our doubts, is God good? Does he really have my best interest at heart? 
Is he a good father? Or is he a father who's just kind of making sure I follow all the rules, and when I don't, he's mad and wants to send me to my, you know, to my room, whatever that looks like for God to do to us? Do I really believe that God is a good, good father? Well, Jesus wants to invite us. And I love the way he does this through this unbelievable story of inviting us to look at God in a different way than we've maybe ever thought of looking at God before. And so I just want to walk us back through part of that section. I'm not going to walk us back through everything we just read because Kate's going to pick up some things next week and uh, Mike Bro's going to pick up some things the week after that. But I wanted to walk us back through a little bit of that story and just to see what I think Jesus is inviting us to see uh, God, to see in God, to see something different about God. Let's go back to verse 11 at the beginning. And he says this, he says, to illustrate the point further, because, and, and I'll pause with that, Jesus is telling three stories here in Luke 15. The very first story was about a sheep that has been lost, and the shepherd goes and leaves the 99 sheep that he has kind of safe and snug, and he leaves those behind. He goes out into the, the wilds and the dangers of, of kind of the wilderness area there, and he goes after that one sheep. Because that's what Jesus is saying is the heart of God. The next story Jesus tells uh, in, this, in Luke 15 is the story of a woman who's lost a coin. And she turns her house upside down. She's got nine coins, but she's lost one. And she turns her house upside down to find this coin. And, you know, for me, when I read Luke 15, I, I talked to, about this with some people here earlier uh, this semester at a, a gathering we had before kickoff week began. I said, when I read Luke 15, this whole chapter just screams at me that God wants us, because he has this heart, so he wants us to have it as well, to have this heart of having a relentless pursuit of the one. The one sheep, the one coin, the one son. The relentless pursuit of the one because every single one, every single sheep, every single coin, every single son and daughter is deeply, deeply, infinitely even valued. So this is the context, and there's these religious leaders standing around, and they're listening to these stories, and, 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 and this is, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but Jesus is really kind of poking, he's, he's poking the bear here. He's like, hey, I know you guys are powerful. I know eventually you guys are going to have me killed and turn me over to the authorities, but he's going, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to stir up a fight here because I want, you think you understand God and all your religious rules and moralism and all this, but... I'm going to show you something different about who God is. And so he says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus tells this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Right away here, you are seeing something about the father's heart. Because this is unbelievably insulting to the father. Essentially what the son is saying, this younger son is saying to the father is, he's going, I wish you would go ahead and die, old man. Like, I, I don't care about you. What I do care about, though, is your wealth, your money, your possessions. And I don't care about you. I just want my share of them. I mean, I, it is so hard to imagine what an offense this is for us. Because here, here's what would happen is, for us, you might go, well, okay, even if the father was inclined to go, man, you really don't like me but I'm going to honor your request because I love you. 
you know, we would just go, hey, the old man writes him a check and says, here, here's your inheritance, you go off and do this. But in that context, where they didn't have a cash and money system the way we do, what he would have to do to, liquid, to kind of liquefy some of his estate, would, he would have to sell off land, he'd have to sell off possessions, animals, different things. He would have to publicly disclose, wait, wh why are you getting rid of your land? That's been in your family for generations. Why are you selling that to somebody? You're, you're, th this is weird, what's going on? He would basically have to publicly out himself that, hey, you know what, this, this son of mine, he really hates me, and he really would prefer that I'm dead. And yet this father doesn't tell him to go away, get out of my face, you're out of the family, there's no way we're doing this. He actually sells his estate. He takes some of it and, and offers the son and gives it to the son. Very, very few fathers, even good ones, would agree to do this. But you're getting a glimpse you're getting a glimpse that this is no ordinary father. This is no ordinary father. Yes, the father sees the son's headed down a bad road. Yes, the father is old and wise enough to go, this is not going to produce happiness and flourish in your life. But because he loves his son, he says, okay, I'll do it. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About this time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land. He began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his field to feed his pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs with looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Now, just for historical footnote here, and I think it helps us get the context of how low this guy has come, is in the Jewish context in which Jesus is telling his story, uh, you know, pigs were considered an unclean animal. I I'm so thankful because I love sausage uh, that, that we don't do that anymore. One of, sausage people, pizza, if you're sausage and mushroom, one of my standards. Unfortunately, my kids all like cheese pizza. I'm like, what is wrong with you all? Get some, get some zest in there. But, but for pigs, they were considered unclean animals in this context. And the religious leaders at the time who were grumbling and sitting around because they were complaining already that Jesus is hanging out with sinners. Jesus is hanging out with sinners, and they're mad at Jesus. That's the occasion here where it says at the very beginning of this chapter, of this story, these three stories are apart. Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, and the religious leaders are going, what in the world are you doing? Because you are, you know, you're making yourself unclean. You're making yourself not pleasing to God by hanging out with these people. No respectable teacher would be caught hanging around with this crowd. They tarnished Jesus' reputation amongst the religious leaders of his day. But Jesus wasn't worried about his reputation. Jesus was worried about pleasing his father and loving those around him, which is basically one and the same thing. To please God is to love people around us. Jesus wanted to love people well. He wasn't worried about being unclean by people he was hanging around with, though this and this son has been made unclean. I, I want to say one really quick thing, and, and I was torn on whether or not to, to even uh, talk about this tonight, but I just want to address it really, really quickly um, because it's an event. I'm guessing who in here has come to a luau party before? A few people, probably most of you. Most of UK, I think, at this point, ha has been, at one year or another, have been to a CSF luau party. And I'll say this past year, mostly just because I'm old, I think I counted this was my 16th luau party. Um, it would have been my 17th, but we didn't have one in 2020. So my 16th luau party. And 
it was, it was the first time I think I was scared at a luau party because there was just bodies everywhere. Uh, I was up on the stage. Actually, it was these platforms we had upstairs outside. In fact, it looks like we still have soda that has been spilled all over them from those things. If you can see this, it's got junk all over it. But um, they were outside, and the crowd's like pressing up against the stage, and it's kind of moving a little bit, and I'm scared. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And can you all move back? But there's really not a place to move back to. I mean, a lot of you were there. You know uh, what it was like. And this year especially... Uh, I, I don't know why this year, out of the 16 luau's I've been to, there are always people who come to luau and they have, you know, um, pre-gamed. I think we all know what that means. Um, <laughs> there's not even a game at the luau. It's, I don't know, do we do bingo or anything? Uh, pre-gaming for bingo? Um, but, you know, they, they have all been, you know, pre-gaming, you know, and this, this is every year, right, uh, at every luau, but something this year, I don't know if it was because there wasn't like a large UK event right before it, so people were at that and kind of behaving themselves and then came over here. It, it was extra, extra crazy. In the 16 years that, that we've had the luau that I've been here, um, because we didn't have it when I first started, but, but it's crazy. Um, and this year seemed especially, especially crazy. The level of pregame, the level of, of some of the stuff that was going on, uh, it was, uh, am I just too old to say pregaming? Is that why people are laughing when I say that? Because, like, you know, as a good, like, nice, hopefully good pastor and dad, I don't do a lot of pregaming. Uh, but my, my version of pregame is like studying pregame stats. Like, okay, who's going to be really good this day? Because I'm a huge sports fan. But... Um, yeah, sometimes when people laugh, I'm like, why are they laughing at me? But oh well, uh, you get up here and you deserve it, I suppose. So, But this year especially, something felt different. And I, I don't know, I'll be honest with you. Gosh, I, I, it did, some of the things did make me uncomfortable, uh, just some of the things that went on. But I, I want to say this, is I, I don't know what we'll do next year. Honestly, it's been one of the first years I thought, yeah, we need to pray. Maybe there's something different we can do at the luau. Maybe we, maybe we do it again, maybe we don't. I don't know, and I, I'm, I don't want to, we got... 280 days or so before we need to decide that at the beginning of next summer. But here's, here's what I want, and I tried to communicate this with our staff when we were kind of debriefing and talking about it, is the one thing, though, I do love about the luau is that everyone can come. Every, there is not, as far as I can tell, anyone who views themselves as a million miles away from God doesn't feel like they, they can't come and be a part of that night. Now, there's, there's troubling parts about the night. I get that. But there is a part of that that I, I do love, that I do love that people feel like, man, I, I can't be a part of maybe a religious group on campus, but they come to something like the Luau and they go, huh, you know, CSF, I met some people, they said they, I met one of the staff, I met somebody who said they were a student involved here, or a, a leader, somebody who leads a Bible study, a core group, a shift group, and they invited me. They didn't seem to be turned off by me. And I see it every year where people come and they, they wind up going, man, if CSF's like this, Maybe God's willing to give me like a little bit more grace and a little more of a hearing, a little more friendship than, than maybe I recognized. Even just a, a few months ago, over the summer, I was in my bathroom one morning and my phone rang and I looked down and it's, it's this weird, I don't even have the Facebook app on my phone, but it's like Facebook Messenger somehow ringing through my phone. I'm like, what is this? And, and I answer and, and it's, I'm like, hello. And it's this girl, Laura, on the other end. I haven't seen Laura for several years now. And she was a student here, you know, gosh, 10, 12 years ago. 
And I, I say, Laura, hey, how's it going? I haven't heard from you for a long time. And she's kind of, it's kind of breaking in and out. She's on Facebook Messenger app, like I said. And, and, uh, and I'm like, where, what, where, where are you these days? Last I heard you were living in California, whatever. She's like, and she was speaking in code because she's like, well, I'm living in this country uh, in. And I'm like, in. I've never heard of that country, in. And I'm like, what? what? And she said, and finally, I get her to say, I'm living in Nepal. I'm like, Nepal? Why are you in Nepal? And she's like, well, I'm, I'm telling people about Jay. Okay, I think I'm getting this now. You're telling people about Jesus? Yes, yes, but this is kind of a closed country. I'm not supposed to be talking about that. And so they don't like for missionaries to come in, but that's what I'm doing. And, and I'm over there. I'm like, Lord, that's amazing. I love it. And, and so we talked for a few minutes on the phone. But the, the cool part about Laura knowing her story was uh, I still remember uh, the year. She, it was her sophomore year, and we were wrapping up the luau. And she was standing over to the side of the dance floor, and she looked out at the dance floor, and she had this, just this curious look on her face. And I said, Laura, what are you, what are you thinking about right now? What's going through your mind. You just have this really unique, unique look right now. And she said, I'm looking out at the dance floor right now, and I wonder who out on that floor is me. Because she said, I came here last year. I had no concern whatsoever about God, but I came because it was a really good party. And I stayed around CSF because I just found this invitation to come and to be accepted right where I was. There wasn't a sense of like, you better come in and change your language, change, you know, your, your clothes or change whatever. It was just, hey, just come, just be here. And she said, so over the last year, when I was a freshman, God just so radically changed my life. And now as a sophomore, she told me, she's like, I'm standing there wondering who, who is me? Which one is, who's that going to happen to now? And I just, I love that heart about things like the luau, things like pancakes, things like that, when we just want to invite people in and we want to show them, like, God will meet you where you're at. We want to meet you where you're at. The religious leaders clearly don't get this about Jesus. They clearly don't get because they see God as, if you do these good things, God will like you. And Jesus is going, if that's your path to God, you're never, ever going to get to God. You're never going to be able to get there. The religious leaders are probably, when they heard this part about the, the, the younger son who's living in squalor, he's just dying to eat what the pigs, these unclean animals are eating, he, he's wanting to eat slop. The religious leaders are probably going, yes, okay, I like where this story is going. The young guy goes out, he lives a wild, crazy life, and, and what happens? Yeah, this is what happens. You live a wild and crazy life, now you're getting what you deserve. And they're, they're actually probably enjoying this part of the story. But then Jesus takes the story, and it takes a really radical turn because he says this. When he, the younger son, finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. You see, I, I, I'm guessing that son's mindset is probably a lot like our mindsets, isn't it? Because we think that when we go to God, that we've got to earn his favor. We've got to somehow maybe manipulate, God, God, if I just do a few good things, then maybe you'll like me. And even the son, it even looks like, it's not even clear to me here. I think it's a really interesting thing that he's rehearsing his speech. It's almost like maybe he hasn't even really learned his lesson. He's thinking, okay, I'm going to rehearse this speech because he hasn't gone back yet. This is before he goes back. He's still out in squalor. He rehearses his speech, and it's almost like he's saying, okay, I think I can maybe manipulate the old man one more time. 
if I go back and tell him I'm willing to work as a servant, gosh, even if he takes me out as a servant, if I can get him to just do that, then, then man, this is better than, than what I've got. What we think of when we think of God is the most important thing about us. We cannot earn God's favor. We need to see that, that God is the all-maker, mighty maker of heaven and earth. We cannot earn his love. We cannot earn his acceptance. God wants to set you free from what some people call performance anxiety. Did anybody ever stress? What was the most stressful test you ever took? Was it ACT, SAT? Was that probably one of the more stressful tests you've ever taken? Fair? No. You're like, ah, I'm going to UK. I don't need a 35 to get in the UK. Um, <laughs> unless you're wanting to be a presidential scholar, then d- different story. But you know what it's like, right? To be stressed, to be in a stressful situation. What about tryouts? Anybody ever have stressful tryouts? When you try it out for a team, try it out and you're going, hey, here, here's the thing. I was just talking to my son about this the other day and dealing with some of this. Caleb is going to eighth grade. He is playing JV basketball and it looks like even the coach is now saying he's probably going to play varsity some this year. And so, and I was like, awesome, Caleb, that's great. But immediately what triggers is for him, and he's okay with it in this instance, he's like, well, now I've got to prove that I'm worthy. Like, you know, I've been working out with the team. I've been practicing some uh, before the season starts, and I've showed enough. I've performed enough to get to this level. But now the pressure is now I've got to stay at this level and maybe even get higher because I don't want the coaches to, to lower their estimations of me. And that's all well and good when it comes to basketball. But what about when it comes to earning God's approval? And God wants to set us free from that performance anxiety of trying to please God. Here's the thing. Tim Keller has this amazing quote about trying to please God and who we are and who God is in this regard. It comes from, uh, actually, we have the book. I think it's outside, $5 uh, in our bookstore out there. It's called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, which I will say, whenever I mention a book from stage and say we have it, just if you're new here and you don't know, we actually, for every book, we have the weirdest bookstore in America, maybe in the world. Uh, Every book we sell, we lose money. Uh, and we intentionally do that. Whatever we buy it at, we get a good deal with Christian publishers, and then we, we, so we get it at a discount, and then we sell it even beneath that. So we actually literally lose money every book we sell because I just want to put good resources into your hands. So when you hear me say, hey, go buy a book in the bookstore, it's because we're dumb and we, we lose money on books. But it's because I want to put good resources. But this is what Tim Keller says in his great book, Prodigal God, that's out there. It says this. It's actually from another Keller book, but he says this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. We are not as good as we think we are. And in some of our moments when we're honest with ourselves, we recognize I am not all that in a bag of chips. We are more flawed and simple in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We cannot earn this Father's love. We cannot. But we don't have to earn this Father's favor because this is no ordinary Father. This is what he says. He says, so in this climactic scene, in this, in this moment, he says, so he, the son, returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf. We've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. Can you imagine what the son thought when he saw that father running to him and the servants trailing him behind him? Because apparently the servants were right there because the father said, quickly turns and talks to the servants. He probably thought, the old man's coming to chase me off the property. He's coming to tell me, I don't, you can't even show your face around here. The disgrace you brought on me, our family, the way you've been living, the, the money you've taken, all this stuff. The, the father's running to him. The son, we, we kind of look at it, and we, we kind of know how the story goes a little bit. Certainly, we've heard it tonight. But man, that son going in there had to be thinking, what in the world? This guy, the, the father's got to be running to me, not out of love, but out of anger and out of hatred to chase me out of here to take revenge. But make no mistake, this is no ordinary father. Remember, we are more sinned and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. While he was still a long way off, I love that detail. I love that detail he gives us here because what it says is, you cannot go further than God's eye is looking for you and longing for you to return home. There is no distance. There is no distance that you can go to run and get away from God's love. He is that father who is looking out to the distant horizon. It says he was filled with compassion for him. It was not anger. It was not, hey, let me recite to you all the things you've done. It was love. It was compassion. One of the most famous paintings of this, and I love this painting. It's a Rembrandt painting. Uh, I think we've got a side of it. It's... Uh, there we go. I mean, even just looking at his feet, just it, it chokes me up because you look at this, this dirty, broken-down son. You look at the older brother of staring over in, in some sort of disapproval of what is our father doing, and you see this son just falling at his father's feet, rehearsing his speech, going, Father, just take me as a servant. Yet the father embraces this broken son. He takes him in. And note he doesn't just take him in and say, well, let me deliberate this. Let me think about it. He does it quickly. He does it immediately. He doesn't just feel sorry for him and say, okay, fine, go out in the shack. No, what does he do? He gives him a ring. A ring is a, like in the same way I have a wedding ring that is a, is a symbol of my status with my wife. He puts a ring on him to say, you are part of our family. Putting one of the family rings on him says, you are a son. He puts a robe on him, which would have been, again, another symbol of you are my son. He puts shoes on him because in the ancient world, slaves and servants would go without shoes. But he wants him to set him apart and say, you are part of the family. He does this because he's no ordinary father. And now this is no ordinary son. This is a son who has now found a place in his home. He's found a purpose because he's got a ring. He's a part of the estate. He is part of the family again. He has found freedom. He's not enslaved. He's not a poor servant living in the land of his poor choices. He's back home now. He's not a slave. He's not a prodigal son. He is a loved son, a loved son. Jesus wants us to see God in this radical way because the most important thing that we can do is get our picture of God right. 
And I beg you to give Jesus a hearing when you hear this story. I beg you to go, somebody along the way taught you something about God, maybe formally in a church setting or wherever it was, or maybe informally, just things you picked up from television shows or wherever else you might picked it up. But I beg you to rethink, to re-believe what you believe about God. Because Jesus is going, this is who God is. He is your Father. Think about it. You know, that famous prayer Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. It's not just the King who's in heaven, the Creator that's in heaven, the Judge that's in heaven, the Shepherd that's in heaven. Yes, all those things are true about God, but He's saying, this is your Father who's in heaven, the Father who loves you, the Father who wants to adopt you. I don't know. I have no idea how bad you've blown it in your life. I know I have blown it so many times and messed up so many times in my life. I've wandered. I've prodigaled. We all have. We've all filled our stomach with leftover slop and pods that the world has to offer, looking for hope in all kinds of random things and random sexual encounters, visits to porn sites, uh, you, you name it, uh, all the different sins that we struggle with that we could list, arrogance, dishonesty, abortion, addiction, feeling unlovable, all those things. I have no idea what the things you label and go, I'm not worthy to be called a son or daughter of you. And Jesus goes, please, please, please listen to this story. And dare to believe that you are more wildly loved and accepted in Jesus than you could ever be. You have this loving, gracious, good father who is no ordinary father and who makes us no ordinary sons and daughters. We are loved sons and daughters. Love sons and daughters. And when you think about God, I want you to begin, and I want to invite you even tonight to think about God as this kind of father, a very, very unordinary father. No matter what you learn in your college years, no matter how much you take away from classrooms, and I hope you do take away a few things, but the most important thing you could possibly take away from your college years, the most important thing you could ever learn to put deep down in your head and your heart is this picture of God. And can I dare you tonight, tonight, to begin to believe that about your Heavenly Father? And can I invite you to start that journey home, even tonight? Let's pray together. Father, Heavenly Father, It is crazy levels of presumption that we have to, to think that we on our own can call you Father. But that's what you invite us to do, Jesus. And so when we say, Jesus, I'm going to try to trust you. And I'm going to try and put my faith and follow him behind you as my teacher and my Lord. I'm going to dare to try to start to believe as hard as it is for, for a lot of us in here to believe that you are a good father. That you do love us. That the things the world has told us uh, about you is oftentimes wrong. That you are no ordinary father who accepts and loves prodigals. You get your kicks off and your, 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 your heart races at this prospect of offering mercy to us. And so, Jesus, I pray that I would believe that. 
This isn't just something that uh, people who've never heard of you before need to believe, but it's for all of us in here to believe deep, more deeply than we have in the past that you are that kind of father that we see in this story and that we can be that kind of children that we see in this story of loved and accepted where our pasts are not counted against us, but we are redeemed, we're restored. So Jesus, even as we sing these last few songs together, I pray that you would begin to work in our hearts, our lives, to, to get us out on the path of believing that about you, that you're a good father. We pray that in your good, strong